0: Hello and welcome to the third episode of the TLDR News Podcast. I'm joined today by Zach, our Editor-in-Chief. Hello. So, uh, not as an exciting week, really, this week as, as what, has uh, been going on. Well, it depends what you're interested in. Well, it in. does actually, does it? I think,
1: for me, more exciting week. Okay. But we'll, get, yeah. on we'll get on to that we We'll get on that. that.
0: So, I think there's a, there's a few things that we, we can sort of discuss, but should we start with the um, Bank of England raising interest rates today? Because I think that's probably the biggest... Biggest yeah. thing from this week. No, I think so that's... Start, think that's a start good with the big start. thing. Yeah, exactly. So do you want to just give an overview of what's happened and why this is particularly important?
1: Okay, so basically, uh, we are recording this on... Is it Thursday, so? Yes. Thursday today. And yesterday, the ONS came out with their inflation figures, and it showed that in the month of May, inflation headline inflation stuck at 8.7%, which was the same as what it was in April. And this is higher than both people expected... And the Bank of England wanted, because obviously we wanted inflation to come down. And the Bank of England's reaction to that, which was announced today, was a 50 basis point interest rate hike, which takes the bank's base rate basically up from 4.5% to 5%. And I don't think you really need to get into like the detailed economics of all this. Um, but that's just basically really bad news, because higher interest rates normally mean you, you sort of slow the economy down. Um, And that that increases the chance of like a recession and reduces the chances of growth. Um, And it also has this very acute effect on the housing market because there's this massive mortgage crisis going on in the UK, which is as people move on to these variable rate mortgages, they all of a sudden have to start paying, well, the variable rate, which is really, really quite high at the moment. And and in effect, that adds something like at least £3,000 onto your average mortgage annually, which, you know, is is an enormous number. And it puts a lot of strain on both the property market and just like, People who are slightly, well, the the most leveraged homeowners, if right. that makes sense. People who have mortgages that are large relative to their incomes. It's just appallingly bad news for Sunak. Mm. Um, and,
0: yeah. This this interacts very much with his five pledges. Yeah. So um, I forget which way around they are, but um, one of them is to uh, reduce inflation. Which is number one. Which Oh, that is number one. Yeah. yeah. And it's also to grow the economy, yeah. which sometimes comes into contention, um, you know, trying to reduce the, the inflation rate while growing the economy as well. Yeah. It's quite a tricky thing to do. Yeah, no, you're right. For exactly that reason that we just mentioned, is
1: the mechanism by which we bring down inflation exactly. is to raise interest rates. And, well, th- at least that's how we, we try and bring down inflation. And that obviously slows down the economy. And that's what's happening today. Um,
0: I think this is... So when when he made these, these five pledges, I think most people had said that either the pledges were too simple because... It, all predictions looked like this was going; these things were going to happen. Um, and saying, "Oh well, judge me on the, these things in a few months," it's like, "Well, they're already going to happen." So you're you're kind of well, they're always forecast to happen. Yeah, exactly. Was, like, yeah. So it seems that maybe this was a miscalculation on his part yeah. now, because if these predictions turn out to be false, and he, you know, inflation doesn't come down, which it's looking like it probably won't, the economy isn't going to grow, if, you know, or at least uh, not that much in a few months' time. When he, he said, you know, judge, judge me on this, you know, uh, the, the electorate is going to look at him as, they, as he asked them to and assume that he's, he's failing as a prime minister. So yeah. this seems like a massive miscalcul- miscalculation on his part. Yeah, well, so I think um, the thing with
1: the inflation pledge is that the, one of the other things that people we criticise mm-hmm. about it is that it's just not his responsibility. So, no. A, obviously inflation is determined by global factors. You know, the entire world is seeing this uptick in inflation because essentially of higher energy prices post pandemic. But B... It's since 1997. The Bank of England has been responsible for the UK's inflation rate. Right? The Bank of England is independent from the UK government. So, if if this was to work out, if inflation was to half, Sunak would, in some sense, be taking credit for something that he didn't do. You know, something that the bank did. Um, and so he sort of invited this pressure. But the other thing is just that even like leaving aside the five tests or the three for your economic tests it's just bad vibes like it is because Sunak comes in and like the the, the vibes he's giving off is sort of economic competence it's sort yeah. of neo Osborneism in a way yeah and it doesn't really matter even if for example the economy grew by 0.1 percent this year or something like that it, mm. it doesn't matter that it meets his target the point is he cal- he came in claiming that he's going to calm things down post this trust and then he's going to sort of get us back on steady economic ground and the fact that inflation is still really high, the fact that we're looking at a mortgage crisis, and the fact even if even if the UK economy grows by a little bit, the fact that things don't feel very good is going to be terrible for his sort of image, for his like appeal as a economic administrator, as a manager.
0: I think had he not made these five pledges, it still wouldn't have been ideal that inflation's going up and the economy isn't particularly growing. But the fact that he's waged everything on these is not going to do particularly well. Well, so he could have pointed
1: at the Bank of England. He could have said, look, this isn't me, guys. This is the Bank of England failing to get a handle on
0: inflation. Not only that, but if you look at the other... elements of his, his five pledges you know one of them being to stop the boats doesn't look like he's doing particularly well on that either at the minute i mean he, he's introducing new legislation but as we've discussed a number of times legislation isn't the thing that's going to bring this down giving certain institutions more power isn't the thing that's going to stop that so it looks like he's it's gone from when he, he made the pledges people saying perhaps these were a bit too easy based on the predictions to it now being <laughs> He's going to struggle to hit any of them. Yeah, low
1: bar, and he's failed to. Yeah, he's low bar, and he's
0: probably not going to hit any of them. Um, And he's not even really got. Do you
1: remember? uh, Uh, Yeah, waiting uh, waiting
0: lists. lists, Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, and he's not really got anything else in his premiership to really point to to say, okay, well, didn't do too well on the five pledges, but I've done X, Y, and Z. He's not really got the political capital to at the minute. He's not got any big grand vision you know some governments come in with these big grand visions how they're going to change society and they start off very quickly new labor you know making the bank of england independent on day one of coming in in 97 you know is a good example of that tunak doesn't have this grand vision that he's trying to enact that he can point to if these five things fail he's not really got much in his locker at the next election if he doesn't meet these targets his poll numbers aren't particularly good at the minute and not meeting these five targets i i you know, things are really, really not looking good for him. No, no, I agree. I think things are pretty terrible. In a way, I
1: sort of feel like an element of sympathy for him. I I know that he's sort of invited this pressure by making one of his five Mm. targets. But, like, the inflation thing really isn't necessarily the government's fault. Um,
0: But as we've already
1: said, sure, it's not the government's fault. But I know, the the targets thing did invite invite the pressure. I I think one of the other interesting... So I think we basically agree there that the Sunak's going to really struggle from this. And I think this really does doom him at the next election. Um, And it's really fascinating watching... Just watching how lucky Starmer has been, like mm. Starmer's luck is just piling up at the moment. You've got <laughs> like the collapse of the SNP in Scotland and that the, obviously that means that Labour will win a couple of seats in Scotland. But what it also does is it sort of it undermines that narrative that ran at the 2015 election, which is that you know, if you vote Labour, you're tacitly voting in a sort of SNP mm. Labour coalition. You're threatening the union. It undermines that. That's no longer the media narrative. The media narrative is now if you vote Labour, you're voting for a Labour majority. Um, And obviously, yeah, and then obviously he's down here in England, basically. He's got Sunak struggling with these economic headwinds, which are so massive that you just can't see him making much progress by 2024. There was
0: some new Redfield-Wilson polling the other day that looked specifically at the blue wall. So that's just for viewers, that's southern constituencies that traditionally voted Tory but voted remain. Um, There's 42 of those constituencies. And Retfield-Wilton polling had put Labour seven points ahead of the Tories in those seats, which is the largest uh, majority that they've recorded since March, I think. Uh, And as you say, this is all just, it's all very lucky for Starmer. And the other thing is, is that in 2019, Labour had lost by so much that for them to achieve, you know, even a single seat majority, um, that would be the biggest swing uh, between any two elections on record. So 97 okay. was one of the biggest swings. So if Starmer becomes prime minister, by default he becomes one of the most electorally successful prime ministers um, just because of the swing required to get him there. And not only that, because everything's lined up, he's probably going to get, a, as things currently stand, a larger majority than just one. So almost by default, because of everything going on, Starmer would become one of the most successful... Uh, labor leaders electorally uh, yeah. in history not in terms of successes uh, successive wins but if you're using the metric of the achieving the largest swing from the previous election he'd be the most successful more successful than blair which is just a ridiculous statistic that's a ridiculous yeah, fact yeah, it's, it's crazy um but yeah it does all seem to be lining up um so outside of economics though uh Obviously, this was a few days ago now, but it seems that the Party Get Saga has been put to bed. Oh, there one more thing I was going to say. On the oh, okay, we can, the, we, yeah. No, no, one more thing.
1: Just sure. one more thing. The other thing I thought was really worth talking about, and I don't, know if, I don't know if there's been more polling recently, but the persistence of inflation has really changed how the public perceive the Bank of England. Yeah? Right, yeah. And basically, from the Bank of England's independence in 1997, basically all the way until very, very recently... The vast majority of the public didn't really care about what the Bank of England was doing. And when they were asked about it, they normally thought they're doing a pretty good job. There was a high level of trust in the Bank of England. But now the latest polling has the public saying there's, there's a net disapproval, net distrust of the Bank of England. So more people like, basically don't think the bank is doing a good job than think it's doing a good job. And that's really understandable because, you know, if you even just sort of glance at the headlines every so often in the past like year... You'll know that inflation is very high, and it's technically the bank's job, and the bank isn't sort of doing its job, and they've also said some pretty silly things. I mean, I think it was, uh, I think it was the governor of the Bank of England who said that workers should, you know, exercise restraint when asking for wage increases, which is always pretty questionable thing to
0: say. So it's also a questionable thing to say if you earn quite a high salary. It's just a hard thing to then Yeah, the politics of it are defend. terrible. Yeah, yeah. shocking. The optics are, are really rubbish. And they've, they've said some other controversial things
1: recently. Um, I can't, I can't. We'll, we'll find some examples. I can't off the top of my head. Um, but what I think is really interesting is that, that this is the sort of tacit and it's the tacit politicisation, the re of the Bank of England. Um, And in a way, I think it's actually quite interesting that it's survived outside of politics. It's it's basically been depoliticized for so long, you know, because obviously in like the 90s and the early 2000s, basically pre-2008, there's this sort of like, ah, we're living in the good times. So Mm. like, you know, monetary policy is complicated. We leave it to the Bank of England. Growth is steady. We're happy. You know, no one really cares about the Bank of England. Um, And then in 2008, most of the blame for the subsequent slowdown doesn't go on the Bank of England, which is constantly trying to stimulate the economy by like cutting rates and engaging in quantitative easing and all that sort of things. All the blame goes to politicians. Mm. And, you know, you're angry at Gordon Brown and Labour for causing the 2008 financial crisis. And then you're angry at the Tories for austerity, which is what you blame for low growth. Um, And of course that's true. But then it's also worth remembering that that actually that the bank was still failing in that period. It was failing to get inflation up to 2%. So inflation was constantly lagging Underneath the, the stated target of two percent, and that's not necessarily a, a terrible thing, but it runs the risk of deflation, um, which would be a terrible thing. We don't again, we don't get into the economics. The point is that the bank was still was was failing then, and now that it's failing, but in the other direction, all of a sudden it's become very politicized, and I think the bank has brought that upon itself a little bit. Some of the comments we've we've seen, um, but I also just think the optics of the bank being the one to dole out the pain as it were you know we this morning everyone's sort of sitting waiting on hooks, being like, how much is the bank going to raise and everyone knows if it goes for 0.5 which is what it went for instead of 0.25 we're going to see more economic pain there's this is sort of there's this is quite tough um theater for the bank do you see what i mean yeah like it just looks bad and everyone's sort of hang, waiting for that decision and how bad it's going to be for the economy and how bad it's going to be for their mortgages and then you do just instinctively blame the bank of england for Pushing up your mortgage rates. So how much like
0: worse do you think it has to get before Rishi Sunak or someone like that starts to float ideas of taking control of monetary policy back from well, Bank of England? Do you is, think that so this, is this is a, what, so a, a possibility? Sunak
1: is never going to do that because that's just not his vibe. Like that's, he's not ideologically, that he's, you know, he's Neo Osborne, mm. in a sense, Neo Blair. And I, I think he likes that sort of like, he, he basically, I think he has this, like, like lots of politicians do, this strong intuition that, monetary policy is too complicated to be left to democracy, which is fair enough. I think that's like a, that's a fair thing to think. It is complicated. Um, sorry. Um, but the... But as, a, as but of... So I was going to say, this yeah. did happen with Corbyn, you know? So Corbyn wanted to, I think he, don't know if he wanted to make the Bank of England, I don't know he want to bring it back into government, but he at least wanted to coerce it into sort of facilitating his, like, very generous fiscal policies um by essentially buying government debt and the liz truss originally i think did basically say she wanted to bring the bank of england under government control and then sort of u-turned and said no there are questions about bank of england but i'm not going to bring it under government control because everyone got a bit freaked out the markets got quite freaked out Mm. Um, and it's really interesting because i think that the I think that what this all is a symptom of is the fact that monetary policy is, it is inherently political because you are making values-based trade-offs. You know, like the Bank of England, when it raises interest rates, yeah, it is saying that it is more important to keep inflation down than it is to keep employment up. It's Mm. saying that implicitly. And, And when you raise interest rates, you know, you're not, that pain is not spread equally across the economy. People who are most affected by higher interest rates Are the poorest people because they're the most likely to lose their jobs, and people who are basically over leveraged on their debt. And the people who are advantaged are people who have lots of money in the first place because Mm. they get to borrow out, lend out at higher rates. And like this is just inherently political. And, there's, of course, I understand the argument, especially this was made in the, in the 90s with Blair, and it was actually this argument really comes, it originates in the late 70s and the early 80s and the Thatcher stuff, mm. that I understand the argument that monetary policy is too complicated for the, you know, your average bloke, um, and that it should be left up, like, to the experts. There, there are certain things that probably should be left up to experts. Um, but it's interesting that it's escaped political scrutiny for so long because
0: it's so clearly political. But I, I don't understand why that, topic area gets this special because there's a lot of different areas that are too complicated for ordinary people representatives to deal with in the pandemic we they didn't hand over you know, control to sites you have a representative in the room who is aided by experts providing them with options. And at the end of the day, all of politics are value based judgments. So in the pandemic, a lot of it was value based judgments on how much we allowing people to go out and socialize versus, you know, people dying. And there was a, there was a balance to be struck there. Yeah. And it was a very complicated thing. But at the end of the day, you had representatives making those decisions. So why in this particular policy area is it seen that that is too complicated for politicians whereas other politics you know there's a ton of different things in politics that are very complicated but that's but how still representative need democracy yeah w- that's how representative democracy works you, you don't and that's why and, and again this has been a debate that I've, I've heard before which is why do you have cabinet reshuffles why do you have people who are housing minister for two years gain expertise in that and then they shuffle them to you know leveling up or wherever else and the answer to that is that they're not becoming experts in that you have experts in housing, you have experts in, you know, not levelling up and, in, in, you know, other departments, health, um, who are providing briefings to the minister. The minister's job is to make va- judgments. They're making the value judgments. That's why you can shuffle them around. They're not the experts. So in this situation, you know, sure, politicians wouldn't be the experts on monetary so policy, but I'm, you'd have... It's a really good question. And I obviously can't provide you with
1: like a... a uh, no. Sufficient philosophical answer. For no, this. sure. But I can t- I can give you the narrative. I can e- sort of explain why it happened. Yeah, yeah. And I think there are three reasons that politicians bef- at the end of the 20th century were convinced that central bank independence uh, and the sort of cordoning off of monetary policy from democracy was a good idea. Yeah. And I think the three reasons are this one. And especially the 70s and 80s, people were a lot more scared of high inflation, were very scared of high inflation for fear of the wage price spiral. Yeah, understandably. Yeah? That's that's
0: what had dominated the 70s. Yeah. Unders-
1: exactly, understandably. But I think what we've learned now is that people were probably too scared of wage price spirals. There's some, the latest data come, the, the IMF did a paper quite recently where they were looking at the real risk of wage price spirals. And they concluded that actually wage price spirals aren't, it's not really a real risk in most cases. And I think you can sort of see this today. I mean, like you look at Turkey, for example, yeah? Turkey should be experiencing a wage price spiral. Not only is inflation really high, not only infl- infl- inflation expectations really high, but Turkey is also actively pushing up wages. You know, Erdogan has put up the minimum wage four times in the past three times in the past 18 months. And it's going to put up again in the middle of this year. Um, and he's put up Public sector wages as well, 50%, a couple of days before the election. Um, and that, that would be a classic wage price spiral dynamic. You've got inflation going mm. up, you've got wages going up, you'd expect inflation wages, this massive spiral. But it didn't really happen. Um, and I think that what happened in probably the 70s and 80s is that we came up with this, and this look, this is my take, so it might be wrong. You can push back on it in the comments if you want. But, but one, uh, it's quite a common take amongst sort of like fun, fun economists. <laughs> And what I think happened is you came up with this very plausible narrative and mechanism, which is that, you know, you have high weight, high inflation and then people ask for higher wages to meet high inflation. That pushes up wages, that pushes up inflation. It's a nice, simple me- mechanism mm. where we end up with this terrifying positive feedback loop that eventually destabilizes the economy and turns us into the Weimar Republic, yeah? And what actually happened in the 70s and 80s is it was really to do quite a lot more with the fact that unions were especially powerful, um especially in the UK, and oil prices were going pretty crazy. And that was for mainly because of the Arab-Israeli war. Mm. But oil prices were going pretty crazy. And I think that people probably underestimated how much of an impact oil prices had on headline inflation. And what they saw as a symptom of uh, sort of overpowerful union bargaining was actually really a symptom of a steep increase in oil prices, um, which in turn had second-order consequences on the headline inflation rate. So I think that that is one of the is that that's one of the reasons
0: i just add to that as well i think the trade union thing is probably because we, we saw this over christmas as well with um you know all the strikes and everything and discussions about the unions and the power these days and they you know, just the nature of the economy has changed to the point where yeah. uh, you know unions just don't have that amount of power yeah uh, the gig the rise of the gig economy is a good example of uh, of that as well um other, so yeah
1: so, so the other thing i think actually it was very very big was the what's called the volcker shock which is mm. when and i think one of the, the basically the volcker shock was a i can't remember what year it was exactly but it was essentially when paul volcker who is the chairman of the fed um really steeply raised interest rates to bring down us inflation which had like persisted about 5% for a couple of years and it worked it worked really well i think he brought them up to like 18% from below 10 um, so I'm has to check my numbers for that, but he brought it up really, really steeply, and it did bring down inflation. And I think that the political class learned two lessons from that. And this is this really is a pivotal moment in the psychology of central banking. So you, this is not to be underestimated. This is like the archetypal case of a central bank doing the difficult thing, you know, for the good of the country. Yeah, all that sort of shenanigans, and he raised rates really, really steeply, and he did bring down inflation. And I think what they learned, political last learned from that, the two things, was that one, interest rates do work as a policy tool to bring down inflation. Mm. And the other thing was that democratic politicians don't have the stomach to do the difficult things because it was really difficult. Like, the the lesson learned from that was that democratic politicians just are not going to subject the electorate to a massive recession, even if it's in, like, the long-term interest of the economy. The incentives just don't align there. Democratic politicians are worried about the five-year time horizon when the next election is, whereas you need someone like a central banker to be looking further into the future. I yeah. think
0: that's a very valid argument, and I think that, that, that makes a lot of sense. But I suppose... No, 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 I'm not arguing against you here. I'm, I accept that this isn't your argument. The I'm argument, just providing the counter... Yeah. yeah, I'm providing the counterpoint here, which is that... Um, I think that's, 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 that's an incredibly valid point, and politicians generally are short-sighted. But that's that, that problem persists in all policy areas, and that's fixing a problem in only one policy area. Short-sightedness is exactly why, especially in the States, you get pork barrelling, I think that's the phrase, you know, get a lot of money for your local area, even though that's not in the national interest, just because you want to get re-elected. You know, it's the classic um, idea that, you know, when politicians are elected, their their job for the next five years is just to get themselves re-elected. That's fixing a problem in only one policy area and if you really truly care about that there's got to be a more wide widespread thing i understand Infinite that fiscal terms, policy that's is the answer yeah, yeah there's, <laughs> there's definitely there's definitely other other solutions here but um no i think that's a that's a more valid point is the uh the, 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 the last reason the sure, little, sure, little, yeah.
1: sorry, i know this is getting long but the first reason so is that whole thing about uh the wage price spiral anxieties the second reason is the whole thing about democratic politicians not having the stomach to mm. do the thing good at the long term and, but the third reason is I, I think that the, ex, basically in the, like, let's, let's take the UK as a good example here. After Blair made the Bank of England independent in 1997, the markets reacted positively. And I think that political class, again, sort of associates the success of the financial sector in the UK um, and how much good that did for the economy with that sort of like technocrat vibes based policy. Do you see what I mean? Like I sort of, th- the markets yeah. did react positively to the Ind- Bank of England's independence. I think borrowing costs did go down. I didn't have to double check this, but I'm pretty sure they didn't. I'm pretty sure that'd be the long term effect of it, even. And, and you can see, actually, by the way, markets reacted to the idea of the Bank of England losing its independence. They really didn't like it. Um, and, it and I think there was this, this sort of sense that that sort of cordoning off of complicated bits of financial policy facilitated the sort of growth of the financial sector, and especially the UK. And there's this sense that those two things come together. That if we want the sort of economic benefits of a thriving financial sector, we need to have a sort of steady and expertly managed uh, financial policy levers. And part of that is about delegating monetary Mm. policy to technocrats, expert technocrats. So I think that's the other reason. I think there's an association with like the independence of of central banks and sort of like a thriving financial sector.
0: Yeah, and I suppose the market reacting badly to the idea of it becoming, uh, you know, handing the power back to politicians is understandable considering that last year that would have meant that Liz Truss would have had power over that for 49 days. I also think it's a shame that the the two politicians that have suggested it
1: also had some pretty funky economic ideas. Who were the two? two, Jeremy Jeremy Corbyn Corbyn and and Liz Truss. Right. And I think, you know, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on either of those, even though it'd be fun to. But I'm, what I'm saying there is that they were definitely unorthodox politicians when it came to the economic policy, fiscal policy as well. And, you know, the fact that those two have been the main, or the most vocal and the most visible proponents of scrapping the Bank of England's independence just doesn't do good for the idea. You know, now that if you, if you, if you say, oh, maybe the Bank of England shouldn't be independent, you're sort of deemed a fruitcake. With, what a restrained you're put in the uh, assessment
0: of the two the of them. You're in the the
1: trust and Corbyn. You know what I mean, though. Yeah, You get what I'm getting at. Um, but I think this is genuinely one... Of the, so I just think that this is, like, the most interesting thing possibly to happen out of all of this is the repoliticization of the Bank of England. And, I, you know, I am sympathetic to it. I do think that it's... it's One of the things central bankers do very well is they dress up monetary policy in technical language to make it sound depolitical, non-political, you know? Apolitical is probably the best word there, sorry. Mm. A lot of prefixes. But, they, you know, they say stuff like uh, we have a tight labor market or um uh you know like consumer demand is too high you know when when the bank of england is trying to like slacken off the labor market that just means unemployment you know and that's mainly poor people who lose their jobs mm-hmm. and there's a lot of good data on this you know like it is when banks raise rates it's poor people who lose their jobs first yeah when they talk about there's too much consumer demand you know or wage growth is too high that doesn't in practice mean they want you to be poorer in some sense, you know, and maybe in the long term richer because inflation will come down and then your wages relative to real prices will go up. But at least in the short term, they want you to be poorer. And what I think sort of happened here is that 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 disguise was only going to last. I don't think it's like deliberately disingenuous. Like I think that's just how central bankers speak. That's just the lexicon they're mm. familiar with. Um, but that that disguise was only going to persist for so long it was only going to survive so long it was only going to survive so much scrutiny I think one of the like I know this is not this is the US and not the UK but I think one of the like almost like a real symbolic turning point was this interview that John Stewart gave with you see it, it was with a former Fed chair I don't think it was this particular Summers. one I think it was Larry Summers um, and yeah and it was it was on exactly this it went quite viral but he was talking about how like when you say like slacken the labour market or whatever it is you're talking about unemployment here and I think that, like, it's it's uh, you can only get away with that sort of language for so long before people start sniffing something that you know, something feels off.
0: Do you do you see this and the 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 polling on this as, indi- as an indication that in the next few months or years that this will become a much larger debate about the Bank of England about the Bank of England's independence?
1: So I think the answer is no because I think it is too boring fundamentally. Like I think people's attention will just be more taken by immigration. Or by, you know, Boris I mean, Johnson at a party.
0: There's a number of people who've watched this far. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh,
1: okay, but um, yeah. So, so I think no is the is the answer. But I I think at least in policy wonk circles, it will become mm. a more interesting question. And I think that the the this, the consensus has definitely.
0: I think it's, it's been interesting watching you um, sort of agree with a Liz Truss policy. I wonder if this is going to be something that we uh, see over the coming months yeah, of you slowly you. coming yeah. around
1: to her ideology. Well, <laughs> equally, I'm agreeing with the Jeremy Corbyn policy. We're not agreeing that's true. with it, but I, I, I just do think that it's more political than people let on.
0: And I, I mean, agree, I mean, I've said similar in the sense that I don't understand why that's treated yeah, differently to you know, other exactly. policy areas. Yeah. So
1: <coughs> I, I agree with you, and I also just do think that. Um, And we'd have to do a whole detailed video on this to go into it. But I think some of the things that the Bank of England has said demonstrate uh, a degree of ignorance. Yeah. Um, Both political and perhaps even economic ignorance. You know, I do think, for example, that the Bank of England is is too worried about wage price spirals. I just do think it's just not real risk. You know, the UK is just not what it was in the 70s. You don't see wage price spirals anywhere at the moment. You know. You know this is like a why republic style anxiety. This is just this is my take so you know don't this is not TLDR's take. is the neutral channel that sort of shenanigans. But you just like just look across the world like when inflation goes up wage growth never matches it. Wage growth is strong here. It's like 7%, yeah. It's still below inflation. And I guarantee you if we did 2 years of this, it wouldn't keep up. It's also worth saying that wage growth has been stagnant since 2008. So sure, while in the last year it's nearly kept pace inflation. Again, it hasn't. So we're still getting poorer. For the past decade, it's been way below. So mm. we've been getting poorer for ages. And now everyone's getting grumpy that we're asking for some more money. I, well, I just think this... I think Get that a, man on a picket line. Well, I just fucking think... it. I, well, I, sorry, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be swearing. But I, and I do think that when, like, the central bankers ask for wage restraint, mm. politically stupid, economically illiterate by my standards. I, to be fair, you know, the Bank of England guy does know more about monetary policy than I do, Probably um it's very easy to shout at it but he's not shouting back at you isn't it <laughs> <laughs> um yeah e- uh, economically illiterate yeah. and what was the last thing and just well i, th- I, th- I, th- I had one other one but it's politically insensitive and economically to my mind illiterate mm. and oh, the last thing is it admits that the bank is not doing its job properly because the, the bank of england should just be raising rates cutting rates shouldn't have to start asking people that's not its job asking people to not ask for pay rises. Do you not feel like, doesn't that, do you see what I mean? Like, there is something just politically mental <laughs> yeah. about the idea of a. Uh, now but I'm. But you're, 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 you're Here you go. Yeah. You're, you're trying to get me
0: over with the unelected technocrat. And then I'm like, yes, yeah, yeah no, yeah. absolutely. And I'm with you on that. But
1: unelected technocrat, fine. I actually love a good technocrat, you know, Mario Jaggi, great bloke. Yeah. But the an unelected technocrat. Buys his round. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a charmer. An unelected technocrat. Telling workers stop asking for wage increases. There's something wrong with that. You know, I, I, I I don't know. I feel like the Bank of England is betrayed. It's like it's politics. That's what I'm getting at here. The Bank of England. That's what I'm trying to articulate. I think the Bank of England has done a bad job at pretending to be apolitical or maintaining its
0: neutrality. I think it has betrayed its politics recently. Sure. I, I, I think we're probably going to have to wrap up around Sorry, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, we didn't quite get into the Johnson stuff, but that's fine, because I think we've spoken how far long, too much about Johnson. How long
1: has this been? Fucking hell.
0: Sorry, so, everyone. Um, I love how we started this from going the Bank of England's raised its uh, from base, you know it's increased basis points by 50 and it's 5% now uh to let's burn the Bank of England yeah. to the ground. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. so yeah that's been an interesting one. So hopefully next time you won't just destroy another UK institution on the podcast but maybe we'll we'll see. See. we should do
1: that we should just pick institutions and me to rubbish.
0: Yeah, Supreme Court next. People, I can, if I fucking take this yes. uh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Like, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, anyway, uh, thanks, Zach. Sure that's <laughs> <laughs> it's not how I was expecting today's podcast to go. No, I didn't
1: realise I was so passionate about it, to no. be honest with you. Do you know
0: what? I think it's the heat. I think the heat doesn't <laughs> no, help. it's the heat. Yeah,
1: yeah. We're just not used to it. We're too
0: English. Anything no. above, like, 21, then we're just furious. <laughs> yeah. If the heat maintains, there's not going to be too many British institutions left. And then, you know, by winter, nothing yeah. happens, everything. Anything that's there by winter, the status quo is maintained. Um, well anyway we'll yeah, see we what happens in this podcast. conversation in a couple of months of time when the air con's on we'll see, we'll see <laughs> yeah how I you'll be saying so, oh i just think the bank of is so good <laughs> yeah cool anyway thanks all Zach. right